Welcome to Succession Stories. I'm Lori Barkman. As an exit value planning and M&A advisor, I call myself the business transition Sherpa. This podcast guides entrepreneurs from transition to transaction, from building value in your business to letting go. What do I do when I'm not hosting a podcast? I work with owners to maximize business value with my firm, small.big. And as a certified mergers and acquisitions advisor with Stony Hill, I guide you through the complex process of selling your company. Tune into Succession Stories for weekly insights to reward your hard work and avoid succession regrets. Hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and sign up for our newsletter at successionstories.com. Here's to your success. Is this the year to sell your company? Don't leave your exit to chance. Stony Hill Advisors works with entrepreneurs like you to get ready for what may be the biggest transaction of your life. Learn what your business is worth by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. In the U.S., there are 32 million family-owned businesses representing 59% of employment. Family business is a broad term that generally includes family enterprise, wealth, and entrepreneurship, also recognizing the human dynamics in this system. Popular media often depicts family businesses in less than a favorable light. Think Arrested Development, Dallas, Succession, and of course, Gucci. My guest today, Daniel Vandervliet, is the executive director of the Smith Family Business Initiative at Cornell University. Dan is dedicated to supporting and strengthening the network of owners, leaders, and alumni that work in, with, or for a family business. I invited Dan to the show to talk about some of the important trends facing family businesses like disruption, innovation, and how the next generation can help drive entrepreneurship and sustainability. I believe that entrepreneurs can learn from family-owned businesses and families should stay close to their entrepreneurial roots. The topic of innovation is so important and is part of my book that will be launched later this year. For more information on the book, please join my mailing list at successionstories.com. Enjoy this conversation about changing the narrative on family business with Daniel Vandervliet. Dan Vandervliet, welcome to Succession Stories. Tell me a bit about you and your career journey with family businesses. Sure. Thank you for having me, Lori. My pathway to family business was certainly not linear. In the year 2000, I joined the University of Vermont and their continuing ed department. At the time, we called these non-traditional learners. Uh, and these were typically adults who worked in business. I would work interface often with business leadership to try to bring university resources to these businesses. At the time, we had a partnership, Continuing Ed did with the business school at the University of Vermont. Um, we had a very forward-thinking dean at the business school there, Rocky Lee DeWitt, who became quite a mentor for me in the family business space. As that evolved, Vermont had a small family business program at the time, and the director left, and Rocky literally looked at me and said, hey, you know a lot of business owners. This could be something that's good for you. At the time, and this was around the year 2003, I knew nothing about family business, but I was instantly drawn to it because it, because of the personal nature of the work that we get to do. It, it's not about the numbers as much as it is about the people and the relationships. And I really threw myself into family business at that point, 
uh, helped to grow that program over the next really 15 years. We saw great success in offering a class in family business. And suddenly, you know, students started coming forward saying how this was important to them. We ran a number of what we called forums. These were programs specifically for business owners and their successors. We also developed a number of peer groups. These were kind of Vistage and YPO style peer groups for both CEOs and successors. Really enjoyed that work and helped to build the UVM program up uh, to a you know, pretty respectable level. In the year 2014, Cornell received a gift to establish the Smith Family Business Initiative. And that was a good time, I felt, to really take uh, what I had learned at the University of Vermont and bring it to Cornell. And I've been here since as the founding director of the Smith Family Business Initiative. Uh, And it's been really a remarkable journey. And again, I think what to this day I still enjoy most about it is the interpersonal nature, the, you know, the, the time that we get to spend with students who are exploring all the options that family business present to them, to talk with successors who might be struggling with certain aspects of coming into the family business, or to talk with senior generation leaders who are trying to figure out strategy or communication or eventually how they want to leave the business and, and their legacy. Uh, and it's greatly rewarding work. And, you know, to, to be able to work with businesses across all industries, all parts of the world, really, is really fascinating to me, because I contend that no matter how many zeros are on the bottom line, a lot of the family issues are fairly universal. Uh, we can kind of add or subtract based on uh, certain aspects or variables, but family is family. And I think we always, whether we're in business with them or not, you know, there are great rewards to it, but also ongoing challenges. Absolutely. And it is fascinating. And I'm so glad that we've gotten connected. I probably should mention so that our, our listeners understand the context here. We were introduced by mutual friends, Shelly Taylor, Jim Taylor. They are part of the family business and Cornell alums. And I'm a Cornell alum. They, as well as I, graduated at different times, but we've gotten connected because of family businesses here where I live in Pittsburgh. You know, being a Cornell alum, I was class of 93 Mm -hmm. and very much have tried to stay actively involved with Cornell. But as you mentioned, 2014 was quite a number of years after I graduated. So when I learned about the Smith Family Business Initiative at Cornell and, and Shelly and Jim, of course, were gracious to give me an introduction to you. I was really excited to talk to you, Dan, because of all the all the reasons you just said, all the mm-hmm. great background that you have, and then the extensive relationships that you have with family businesses. So why don't we talk a little bit about Cornell and mm-hmm. the Smith Family Business Initiative? What's the mission of the organization? You know, we, we exist to help all of those that work in, for, or with a family business. And we classify that as, you know, our, our, our traditional people like Jim and Shelly, they work very much in the family business. Shelly also works with family businesses as a consultant, as do you. So as somebody who is working with a family business, you know, there's a certain set of skills needed to understand what might be going on beyond what is often being shared with you from a business perspective. How do you uh, build relationships across generations? How do you get uh, families unstuck from things that might be very deeply hitting, hidden in the family? And then those that work in family business, you could be an HR person, you could be a senior manager. 
So we see these people as students, and these are students that end up uh, in the class that I teach. Uh, we see these people as many of our alumni, like yourself and Jim and Shelley and many others, as well as really anyone in the family business ecosystem. We are not exclusive to Cornell. So our conferences and events are generally open to all who are interested in, in getting connected into that network and, and learning more of their position in the family business. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of the myths and realities of family businesses. There's such mm-hmm. a popular culture with fun shows that everyone probably is familiar with from whether it's Dallas and Dynasty to, you know, Arrested Development and, <laughs> and of course, Succession. Uh, what are some of the favorite myths that you come across that you love to debunk? You know, whenever I give a talk, and, and if I could talk to your audience members right now, I would ask them, what's the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the term family business? And I often track these results over time. And, and without fail, small instantly pops up. Words like fighting or conflict or it's complicated are top of the list. And then also sort of this uh, slow, insular, you know, that, they, that they're not competitive or you know, they just can't compete with, with the big ones. The small one really gets me because often I will get introduced if I'm, say, I'm giving a talk or whatnot, and, and invariably they will switch out family and small. And so they'll call it the small business initiative at Cornell, even when I warn them not to do that. So this mindset that, that small and family business go hand in hand, I think, um, uh, is, is very interesting. I think it's natural because these are probably the businesses we relate to, you know, the corner store, the restaurant, the gas station, the hardware store, you know, these are the ones we see in our communities all the time. And certainly many of those are small, but as we work across the spectrum of family business to medium size enterprises, as well as large, by definition, Walmart and Ford are still family owned businesses. So it's a very broad spectrum. And, and of course, there are a lot of different ways that those businesses remain family-owned, but I think to, to see them as only small or, you know, kind of old and dated is not true. You know, the, the myth around conflict, I think, is natural, and I think that's what plays in the media. You know, Succession is a great example of this. It's, it's a very entertaining story, and many of those issues are real. You know, this is obviously you know, given a little bit of a Hollywood touch and there's a lot of money involved and, and the relationships are, are certainly amplified. But I think that the, the challenge is when that's what people see on TV or we hear the stories in the news, it certainly does taint uh, the image of what family businesses can be like. I have sat with many family businesses that are just inspiring to me in the way that they approach not only their family relationships, but their business relationships. It's never easy. There are always challenges to it, but I think uh, you have to sort of get beyond some of the Hollywood stereotypes or what we read in the in the headlines because that's entertainment, whether it's real or not. But there are many family businesses that do amazing work. Who is your most important customer? The person who buys your business. Stony Hill Advisors works with owners to maximize the value when you're ready to sell. Get started today with a business valuation by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast.
What do you see as the economic impact of family businesses in the United States, whether it's from an employment standpoint mm-hmm. or just from total contribution to the economy? Yeah, this, this is one I think that, that catches people off guard. And, and even when I started here at Cornell and we didn't have a, a family business program, I had to sort of sell uh, some of the other faculty members on why we needed a family business program. There was a study that was just done in 2021, and this this actually updated the study done by Astrakhan and Shanker 2003. So the, the, the original article in 2003 looked at the economic impact of family businesses on specifically the U.S. economy. And it has remained one of the widely, most widely cited articles in family business literature. It had not been looked at since that time. And if we think about what has happened since the year 2003, sort of the dot-com boom has come and gone, the real estate boom. Of course, the internet has grown. The way we do business has changed dramatically. Of course, the Great Recession, numerous presidents, world conflicts. So it was time to update this study. And what we found is that, if anything, the economic impact has possibly grown some. So 59% of employment and the private sector workforce is generated by family-owned businesses. They account for about 83.3 million jobs. One interesting note is that we identified 32.4 million family-owned businesses just as, a, as an actual number. That number actually came up almost 10 million from the year 2003. So I get the question a lot, like, what's the future of family-owned businesses and I think it's very solid. I mean, we, we live in a time of great change, and that has only accelerated over the last two years with the worldwide pandemic. And I contend that innovation uh, and entrepreneurship still begins at home. And so for anyone who's thinking of uh, how to build a better mousetrap, they get started in the home. And it is undeniable that the first people that they will turn to, whether it's for investment capital, whether it's for physical capital, whether it's for access to business networks, or, you know, sometimes just growing up inside um, an entrepreneurial family, there are certain traits that are learned. You are going to turn to your family in those situations because you trust those people. And there is a cost that is beneficial to doing business with family. So this report that was done in, in 2021, authored by Torsten Pieper out of South Carolina, I think really underscore that family businesses still have great impact on the U.S. economy, whether they're classified as small, medium, or large enterprises, and they are still a force to be reckoned with uh, when it comes to economic impacts. I'd go one step further and just say that's, that's specifically U.S. At Cornell, of course, we deal with a very global population of students. We have students that come from Latin America where many as 95% of businesses um, are family owned or family controlled. Uh, In India, that number, I've seen a report that it approaches almost 98% family owned. So while they are greatly important here in the US, as you go further afoot, that number just continues to increase greatly. That is a really big number. One of the things you mentioned, I want to just come back to, which is about innovation. And if there's so many businesses that are growing and thriving, how do we ensure their continuation in this age of disruption? And I think one of the myths, which some of us probably have encountered if we've worked in family-led businesses, is that there's a resistance to change. Now, certainly that could be generational. Some folks have come on my show where they've talked about the stereotypes, the sayings, like the spouting whale gets harpooned and 
some people have come on the show and talked about they they were given the keys, given the baton and then told don't screw it up, you know, and so that really sets the tone and the culture for their leadership when they become in charge of the company. So there's a challenge there. And mature family-led companies that are not innovating are going to die, right? It's just a reality. Any company that doesn't innovate is going to die just in our in our dynamic environment. What are some of the best practices that you've seen when it comes to these multi-generational companies adopting an innovation culture and innovation practices? One of the phrases that I've heard from my good friend, Sean Amirati, we teach a class together at Carnegie Mellon in the Entrepreneurship Center, and he calls it innovation theater. That innovation theater means we give it lip service and we say we're doing innovation, but we're really not, right? So innovation theater, what is the reality when it comes to being effective or just having innovation theater? Yeah, this is uh, this is an important uh, component for family business, and uh, you know, this is what I, I sometimes use the analogy of the double-sided sword is that yes, um, uh, family businesses can certainly be stagnant. They can have leadership in place that is resistant to change. Uh, and that is very much a reality. And we see those businesses often struggle and uh, either sell or, or fail. Um, but the, I think the other side of that is that um, the family is a great place for innovation. Um, you know, that, that should be the place where um, we can take these risks, um, where there should be room for growth and where um, they should be accepting of uh, this next generation coming in who uh, has grown up in a very different world, even than, than you and I. Uh, you mentioned you graduated in 93. That was the same year I graduated. And um, you know, email was barely even a thing when, right. when you graduated and the, and the internet, you know, you still had to pick up a phone and, and, and connect it to the modem. Um, and when you think about uh, this generation of, um, you know, students that are coming into play, they, they just do business and they see the world in a completely different way that we do. Now, in regards to best practices, I think um, it would be really hard to pinpoint one, but I, I think a few things, uh, you know, first it starts with governance. Uh, and, and I say governance sort of small g, and by that I mean, you know, the ability of a family to talk and be open and have a forum for these ideas. Um, and that can be more formal um, if there are things like board of advisors, board of directors, family council, uh, because this is, you know, where some of those voices begin to be heard and incorporated. And if you are the next generation in that family, you begin to understand, you know, what the business is all about. I think I think families need to educate um, the next generation and what the business is about, what the values are, uh, and what the future is. You know, what, when do mom and or dad plan on stepping aside and what's the process for picking that successor? Um, so I think that's a, I think that's a starting point uh, that should not be overlooked. Um, one of the practices that I've seen, and again, this comes in, in various forms, uh, and it's an extension what I just described, um, but some families actually create um, almost like a, um, what would we call it, like a, like a shark tank type um, uh, ability to, for, for the next generation to almost pitch ideas. And this can start at a very young age. Some families have set up funds where, um, you know, I can, I can pitch my idea and I need $500 to make this happen. Um, and um, I can begin to build business. Now that low end, uh, but in the business itself, um, if, if the business has some, uh, say, scale at this point and ability, um, one great place for the next generation is to, um, you know, get involved in helping to, say, grow um, the overall reach of the business or expand the portfolio. 
the Smith family is a great example of this, where um, they're still in the trucking business, which is what their original business was. Um, but now through their family office, the next generation has been much more involved in things like um, mergers and acquisitions, um, real estate development. Um, so the, the family does not actively um, um, operate the trucking business anymore, but they're very active in uh, sort of helping to grow what we call sort of the family enterprise, uh, which has moved beyond a singular family business. So a lot of ways that this does happen, but again, I think it's creating that place or that forum, whether you know these are kids that are still in middle school or high school to understand how um, to pitch an idea and then build it and grow it and, uh, and, and succeed as well as fail. Um, all the way up through, you know, actual entities um, such as investment offices or, or family offices that, uh, you know, actively, um, you know, look to sort of grow and innovate. You talked about the next generation, which leads to this next question, and you answered part of it. So I'll ask mm -hmm. this other part, because I think the part you just talked about really effectively is what are some of the dynamics the next generation may be facing when they're coming into the company? But let's specifically focus it on succession, specific to that, because there are still these expectations around perhaps you have to go to another company and get experience before you come here, or you have to be in the company, maybe be in a certain function before you can move up. We don't want you to have a diminished role in the company at the same time. We don't want to over promote you because the rest of the organization might reject that, you know, nepotism and, and all those types of negative things that could come along with someone who might unjustifiably get that top spot in someone else's eyes, right? Is, is, it's all about subjectivity here. How do we make it more objective? And how can the next generation be coming in in a, in a position of strength for themselves as an individual? Yeah, I, I think this is a very important um, aspect for family businesses because there are a lot of unwritten rules in family business. You know, a lot of a lot of implicit actions we take that are based on many things. Sometimes they're based on gender. Sometimes they're based on birth order. Uh, you know, sometimes they're based on uh, the family itself. Um, and and when those get sort of rolled into the family business, they can be very dangerous. You know, if the oldest is always becomes the CEO, uh, you might in the other generations that uh, that the business might need. Um, I'd love to use this one example of a business um, here in Vermont, um, how they tackled this. And it was a business that was four brothers. Um, and they actively had discussions around um, uh, essentially creating a series of rules, almost like a constitution. Um, this was done on a piece of notebook paper, um, just written down by which they got there that was important. Uh, and they all agreed um, that for the next generation, um, they needed to go get an education. Did not stipulate what that education was, uh, just that the education itself was valuable for the individual and that ultimately the business was not here to serve the individual. The individual was there to serve the business. Two was to go get outside experience. Again, this was not stipulated. Uh, it could be in a, in a similar type industry, um, but uh, that was not stipulated. But uh, the underscore here was um, experience matters. Uh, and, and again, uh, if you don't end up back at the family business, you need to succeed on your own. Um, the third was returning to the business. If they so chose, um, they would have to work for one of the other brothers. Um, and you would not come into a position immediately and work for your dad um, and then succeed him um, uh, that easily. 
Uh, so you sort of had to see how other parts of the business worked. Uh, and then eventually, you know, opportunities of leadership would be opened up to you if, if you were proved um, successful. And I, and I love that example, again, because um, it was fairly simple. Um, it was probably done uh, around a kitchen table in one night, um, but it was the fact that they codified these rules, they shared them, and they all agreed to them. And I think that's what's ultimately important. It's not, um, you know, just the, again, the mom or dad making these decisions and not sharing them openly. Um, it's that there was buy-in across um, all of those families um, and that it made sense. Um, and, you know, those rules can be more formal. Some families have family constitutions um, and, and they go much more in detail. Um, but uh, the process by which I think the family arrives at those rules or at least, um, you know, stipulations for employment are very uh, important rather than, you know, uh, when junior knocks on the door, you know, we're just going to give them a job or, or her a job because their last name is the same. Right. This concept of a disruptive successor in this discussion we're having about next generation, I want to mm -hmm. talk about that. What's a disruptive successor? Well, it's someone who they're charged with changing the status quo mm -hmm. so that the business can stay relevant and current for the future. You know, there's really an investment in the future, but it might feel a little disruptive, right? Because that's the nature of, of being a disruptive successor is. And so how do we balance that? And what would be some of the keys for a family firm to put someone in place very purposefully as a disruptive successor? Have you seen that happen? Or do you have some perspective on that to share? Yeah, this is, uh, you know, I think this is something that uh, Jonathan Goldhill talks a lot about and, and why it's important uh, for the next generation to come in and really make their mark. This is a, a, a challenge. Uh, most successors, their biggest fear is that the business will fail on their watch. Uh, so to come in and make these disruptive changes uh, can be um, can be daunting uh, because if those changes don't pan out, uh, then <clears throat> uh, you know the burden of the family uh, ends up on that person's shoulders. Uh, I, I love to tell this one story, and, and again, I think it exemplifies what it is uh, this was a business that was founded by two brothers uh, and it was in the skincare um, space and they did mostly contract uh, or, or I'm sorry they had a, a private label that they they sold um, and the business was not doing good uh, and the son came in son of one of the fathers uh, came in and took over uh, and this is a very dramatic example so I, I am not um, saying this should be uh, the way everyone approaches it but I do think it's sort of uh, exemplifies um, a, a way for a successor to come in and uh, sort of say, you know, this is my business now. Uh, and, and essentially, in, in this case, um, the successor came in uh, and told everybody uh, they effectively needed to reapply for their jobs, that this was a, a different company now. We needed to take it in a very different direction because uh, and, and had numbers to sort of justify that. Uh, and some people thought, yeah, that's great. We can finally get rid of some of the dead wood around here. But, um, you know, the successor was very clear that it meant everybody. Um, and I can't tell you how many people were hired back, but I do know many of them were. But the message here was, you know, this is not my father's company anymore. Um, this is my company and this is the direction um, I'm seeking to take this in. Uh, it paid off greatly. And the company today is still growing under that individual's leadership. Um, but it takes bold moves like that, uh, and I think the confidence um, to do so. And in this case, what was important was that 
individual um, had been out of the family business for 10, 15 years and had a very successful career. So, you know, if we go back to that previous example, you know, again, it underscores the, the, the value of outside experience um, and not coming back to the business just because, um, you know, your family owns it and, and you're instantly seated as the vice president, uh, you know, waiting to be the CEO. So that outside experience is, is really key. Um, and, uh, and also, the, you know, just to be bold in, in those situations. Yeah, absolutely. So as we wind down our conversation, Dan, and people want to get in touch with you, what's a great way to find you online? You know, I think the easiest is just to search for Cornell Family Business, um, uh, the Smith Family Business Initiative at Cornell um, uh, does have programs uh, not only for students, but for uh, alumni and anyone in the family business community. We, we run a number of what we call peer leadership forums, which are YPO uh, and Vistage style peer groups. Uh, we do a conference each fall uh, in Ithaca. Um, Hope to return to in-person next year. A beautiful last, place. <laughs> it is. The last two years have been virtual. And, uh, you know, what's been amazing about the virtual conference is that uh, we've had nearly 400 attendees. Uh, I think the last uh, time I looked, we had almost 25 different countries represented uh, in that mix. So, you know, there is a little bit of an upside component that, you know, we have uh, been living in the last two years. Uh, and then in the, in the spring of each year, we do a one-day, what we call a Family Innovation Summit in New York City. Uh, again, this is open to all that are in a family business, but uh, easiest way to find us is uh, just search Cornell Family Business uh, and you will find the Smith Family Business Initiative. Perfect. I know you have a lot of favorite quotes, but is there one in particular that you'd like to share? The quote that goes through my mind all the time uh, is, what if I succeed? Uh, I think we are often filled with doubt in our own lives, uh, in our professional lives, uh, and it's very easy to see what failure looks like to us. Um, and uh, for some reason, uh, you know, sometimes we're, we're just programmed to think that way. What if I fail at this? Uh, but, um, you know, if we turn that around a little bit and we think about what does success look like, um, ask yourself, what if I succeed at this? What comes next? Awesome. Dan, mm -hmm. thank you so much for being on the show with me today, sharing your insights. And maybe we'll have you come back in the future. I we can talk to. a little bit more about all the things that we just hit the surface on today. So again, Sounds thank you so much for your time. Sounds great. Thank you, Lori. My objective is for you to have a lucrative and successful succession. If you want to understand the value of your company today, that's a great place to start. The sooner you understand what creates value and what detracts from it, the more time you'll have to close the gap if there is one. Hundreds of business owners have taken my complimentary business assessment. As a first step, schedule a call with me by visiting meetlauriebarkman.com. That's meetlauriebarkman.com.